You're listening to an episode of the C19 Podcast, a production by scholars from around the world that explores the past, present, and the future through the United States and the long 19th century. We are an official production of C19, the Society of 19th Century Americanists. Subscribe on iTunes, SoundCloud, or wherever you get your podcasts. The opinions expressed in this episode do not reflect the opinions of the respective individuals' employers, nor the official opinions of C19. Hi, this is the C19 podcast, and I'm Kyla Schuler, a professor of women's gender and sexuality studies at Rutgers University, New Brunswick. And I'm here today with Holly Jackson, who is associate professor of English at UMass Boston. Holly is the author of a stirring new book, American Radicals, How 19th Century Protests Shaped the Nation that came out from Crown Publishing, an imprint of Penguin Random House, this fall. And this book makes a really important contribution to 19th century scholarship, as well as to larger political discussions happening today, in that it brings to life three central fields of revolution that 19th century collective movements were aimed to not just reforming, but completely redoing uh, the, the basic fabric of American society. And those three central fields of revolution that Jackson emphasizes are slavery and race, sex and gender, and property and labor. And she brings them together in the full richness of their imbrication, um, which is a, a wonderful thing to read now, and especially as in the 21st century movements say toward free love and socialism seem like separate trajectories, um, but they didn't begin that way. They began as part and parcel of the same broad collective movements. So it's a really exciting book to read um, for the long histories of our current political resistance. And it's especially relevant now, I think, also as a project because of more and more humanity scholars wishing to bring their research to wider publics. And this book is really a model of how to bring 19th century expertise uh, to life for engaging reading for non-specialists. So welcome, Holly. It's great to talk to you today. Um, And I wonder if you could start by just beginning with how you came to this project and then also how you approached the research process differently given that you were going to be right that this book is for a general audience and not just a, a, and not a monograph only for a specialized audience. Sure, yeah. Uh, thanks, Kyla. Um, so uh, I came to the project, I, I initially started working on the free love movement after my first book came out. And this was sort of uh, in line with the interest that I had had in critiques of the family and a kind of an anti-familial politics, a critique of the private sphere and sexual normativity. And I was trying to figure out if free love in the 19th century was uh, best understood as a sexual subculture or a a movement of some kind, but they didn't have uh, political goals exactly. Um, And um, I wrote an article about their novels um, just because that's kind of what I had always done. Um, But I was looking for a new project as a writer that that wasn't necessarily academic literary criticism. Um, And right around that time, uh, Trump was elected president. And there was this wave of mobilization after that moment that um, 
felt kind of continuous with the energy, the protest energy that we had seen since 2008, but seemed to be taking on a kind of a, a new life um, where a, a lot of Americans seem to be feeling really radicalized and really engaged. Um, and it seemed to me that if I could write an informed but approachable book about the beginnings of modern social justice work and specifically about um, their roots in kind of uh, coalitions and in um, crossover between issues, then uh, this material might actually be um, even more interesting to a general readership than it would be to scholarly specialists uh, in the 19th century. Mm-hmm. Um, and as, as far as the research, for me, I set out to do the same research and just make the writing really different. So um, the the process and the goals of the research, I think, were the same in the sense that I was looking for new text and materials that would surprise even experts who knew the who know the period very well. And then I was looking to to do kind of fresh readings um, and and revisit more familiar material and 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 reevaluate our understanding. Um, and I think that this was this is what the uh, trade press wants to see just as much as what a university press wants to see or, or an academic journal. Um, mm-hmm. So my process was to, I mean, the a lot of the research came from tons of radical periodicals um, like the Liberator, Freedom's Journal, uh, Labor Papers, Free Love Papers, lots of convention proceedings. Um, and to some degree, I did look at private writings like letters um, in various archives, um, especially in the Boston area. Uh, Boston Public Library has an amazing anti-slavery collection. Um, the Harvard Libraries had some of Fannie Wright's letters. Um, the American Antiquarian Society has a lot of materials as well. Um, so I wanted to do research that was that would be uh, that would be that could stand up to kind of expert readers and that would be of interest to expert readers. Um, and I just wanted the difference to be uh, in the writing. Yeah, which is really an, an achievement because you're doing, in a sense, two projects here. You're doing expertise, uh, you know, monograph level research, but then also writing like a creative writer, making making the scenes really vivid and come to life, um, which creates for really rich reading. What were some of the surprising findings for you as you were doing this research into so many primary sources in archives um, and outside the archives? Um, you know, a lot of it was surprising to me. I felt like I was learning a lot um, just because these movements are so dismissed and understudied that even for people who are like me, supposedly some kind of experts in the 19th century, and I you know, have been teaching uh, this period for 15 years, I felt like how much did I really know about labor and about socialism and about sex radicalism uh, in the period. And so there were lots of scenes and lots of moments and lots of people that were um, completely new to me. And I wanted to kind of bring that sense of surprise to readers in the same way that I that I try to do for, uh, as a teacher. And it was that same mm-hmm. kind of voice that I was trying to use. Uh, and I think that the classroom is kind of a laboratory for for crossover writing. And then the crossover writing kind of helps the teaching. Um, but an argument that emerges from the narrative I, that surprised me uh, is just the extent to which suffrage and the suffrage movements after the war um, really feel like such strategies of containment and such a stumbling block and such a kind of death knell for a lot of the more radical energy that we see leading up to that point. Um, I knew that I didn't want to focus on the suffrage movements because I I didn't want to have a particular focus on liberal legal reforms. Um, but I had, I, you know, positive <laughs> feelings about voting uh, before. And obviously, we should still be, you know, fighting for for uh, 
for access, universal access to suffrage. Um, but really those movements, um, those movements, as I said, they sort of, they seemed like sort of ways for, to sort of give these, these movements um, a right that could be really easily taken away. And so I was surprised at how, at how these, these things that are, especially right now in this kind of centennial year that are being celebrated as the kind of signature achievement of, of the, of these radical movements is that they kind of, you know, they're, they, they resulted in multiple um, constitutional amendments. It seems to me that that was a kind of a sad end um, to a more capacious vision in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. Yeah. For example, you write about Elizabeth Cady Stanton you know, and as she starts as being sympathetic with free love and uh, has this really broad radical revision about redoing the status of, of women, especially for her white women in marriage and social standing and, you know, sort of like moment to moment texture of women's experience in public life. Um, and yet the movement that she helps in large part to start ends up by the end of her life being incompletely about obtaining the vote. You know, she never got that narrow, right? Right. As um, you know, she famously writes the, the woman's Bible in the 1880s and um, early 1890s and doing this kind of atheist work that if anything, just creates the women's movement to push her out even further. And so you write this really beautiful line about women's movement being essentially the dam that narrows the current of radical movements, uh, which was really striking. It's not the way that we tend to narrativize the place of suffrage feminism in 19th century protest history. Right. I mean, yes, she was, um, she was writing uh, very uh, directly and explicitly in support of free love. She thought that the marriage, you know, what they called the marriage question was at the root of all reforms having to do with women's lives. Um, And they were very much like fellow travelers with sex radicals who were making this argument even more explicitly. And there was, the book tries to explore some of the overlap there. Although obviously Mm -hmm. there were lots of concerns about respectability, et cetera, that tended to hamstring a lot of these movements all the way along. Um, but yeah, I mean, she in particular was so furious, uh, that, uh, when the, you know, after the abolition of slavery, when the, the remainder of the anti-slavery movement turned into a black male suffrage movement, she was so furious that black men were going to have the right to vote before white women, um, that this became a kind of a single minded obsession and focus, um, of the movement. And of course they eventually did, uh, achieve, uh, their this one kind of legal reform at long last. Although, I mean, they basically did it not only at the expense of these long-standing coalitions and these long-standing relationships with people like Frederick Douglass, who she had been working with for decades, and then mm-hmm. um, you know just destroyed these relationships with Frances Harper and others who were um, you know decrying her kind of uh, increasingly evident racism. Um, but also she, she pursued, they, as a movement started to pursue suffrage and started to retroactively narrate the women's movement as a suffrage movement, um, at the expense of a more capacious vision that started out in a, in a much kind of wilder tangle of socialism and free love and, um, uh, actually, you know, attempts to build coalitions with labor movements and working women, um, et cetera. And that certainly grew out, um, 
primarily for, uh, from the anti-slavery movement. And so all of that gets, uh, all of that was basically sacrificed um, to this turn to, sla- to suffrage after the war. And that just to me seems like a particularly unfortunate narrative about, you know, what happens to this movement. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, fascinating and depressing. Um, that leads me to my next question, which is, you know, sort of the way that Stanton has come, Stanton and Susan B. Anthony have come in history to stand in for this much larger movement also. Um, and how much of a tendency that is in the narrativizing of American history, especially in a popular sphere, um, toward the great man narrative. And you write, Thoreau is revered, the Brook Farmers forgotten. Iconoclastic individuals remain far more palatable to Americans than collective movements. And you strike such a great balance throughout between individual figures the reader can latch onto, like John Brown, Martin Delaney, Francis Wright, but you also refuse to single them out from the movements they're part of. And I'm wondering how you went about striking this balance in your research and writing to highlight the work of individuals, but then simultaneously resist the great man narrative that unfairly isolates the individuals from collective struggle. All of the individuals that I focus on to any degree that I I kind of bring to the fore, I try to, I mean, they're all flawed, obviously. I mean, they're all kind of necessarily flawed. And I I try to present them in a way that highlights all that is that's really like brilliant and courageous in their thinking and in their activism but i also tried to call attention to blind spots and failures and and hypocrisy um mm-hmm. because i do think we should be focused i think we should focus more on on movements than on than on individuals and we also have to understand movements i think as sites of struggle between individuals that had actually like quite sometimes quite um opposed points of view on the subjects at hand. So in other words, like we can't think of like the women's rights movement as, I mean, so Stanton and her friends, you know, wrote the history of those movements uh, of, right. the, of say the women's movement. But in fact, like the women's movement was an important site of kind of struggle where, you know, Stanton's at the podium saying these horrifying racist things and in the same, you know, at and then Douglas or Charles Purvis or someone at, at various conferences takes the podium and answers her. And so the movement is like a site of struggle around these ideas, not just a megaphone for, I mean, these particular people that we see as, leaders. And so I was, I tried to, I tried to make it clear that, um, that the book is really about, is meant to be a collective history because, I mean, and I think one thing that's funny to me looking at it now is when you kind of leaf through it, there are so many scenes, um, that are kind of like street theater scenes, like this civic, like mm-hmm. flags flapping, like, you know, a crowd comes in from the street, like there, it feels like every other chapter is, has a big, um, scene of either it's a protest or a party or a kind of a demonstration or a parade. And it's, I think it's because I am just really, I was just feeling really kind of um, excited about those kind of like civic affects in public um, yeah. and about collectivism uh, in a way that, you know, these kind of individuals and whether they should be canceled or not, or what they were writing from their conquered studies, it just was I don't know. I, I would just, I felt really um, interested in the idea that actually there were hundreds of thousands of nameless Americans in the 19th century who were out there kind of constituting this massive multi-issue mm. left. Um, mm. And that it, there were these individuals who represented these kind of fringe positions, but they were far from alone. They were just the tip of the iceberg. 
That's really fascinating. And a good example of how you're using those um, scenes and strategies of creative, creative writing, like creating these vivid scenes of public political work um, to narrativize the argument so that the reader like gets that feeling and, you know, gets a clear sensory impression of, of that there are hundreds of thousands of people involved in these movements without you having to didactically necessarily make that point over and over again explicitly. Yeah. What did writing for the public open up in your approach and intervention to doing historical work? <clears throat> uh, I mean, I don't know. I think it's not for everyone, but for, for me, it was, as I said, really, it felt really exhilarating and really rigorous um, and really fun. And I feel like it kind of kept me honest in the way that teaching does where, um, you know, you kind of have to be clear and, it's you have to admit that what you are doing is trying to communicate with other people <laughs> and that it has to be written in that way. Um, mm -hmm. And the challenge is that it's hard to do um, and that also it's against our training um, and that there if, if you are an academic who is writing for uh, for the public and for a trade press, you have to kind of figure out a balance between um, a kind of an ethical model of engagement and citation with all of the other scholars that you um, are in conversation with. And, and actually it's just, it's an opportunity to bring, you know, through the footnotes or through whatever, it's an opportunity to bring this, this body of scholarship uh, to the attention of a kind of a broader reading public. Um, mm -hmm. But at the same time, they're writing, um, as you said, a lot of what we are trained to do as writers is to engage in these in the arguments rather than to really dig deeply into the material in other ways. Um, and, you know, is it, it took a lot of drafts and a lot of time to kind of uh, to write in a different way. And I've had some, I mean, I had, you know, have done some writing for newspapers and things like that where, mm -hmm. um, which is, you know, the op-eds, et cetera, are like a good kind of training for this where you have to kind of make the point. And so many, I mean, so many things that you feel as a scholar are kind of crucial for inclusion that can't be included. And it really is a kind of, it just like the kill your darlings. I mean, like when I first, my editor sent something back and like I opened the document and like every darling was totally murdered. And like the whole thing was like, I love that she's And you know, I, uh, so I work as an, I'm, I'm one of the editors for the New England Quarterly, the scholarly journal. And so I know that, and, and just as a writer too, I know that in scholarly writing, we expect a, a a lot of autonomy and we don't like rigorous editing. Um, academics don't tend to like it. And so, I mean, that's, yeah. I think that that would be a challenge for some people. Like I actually really um, like that kind of like critical reading and, 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 and as a kind of a collaboration where the editor is like actually in your sentences. Um, but mm -hmm. I think that, that, that it's, it's really different than what, than what we do as academic writers. Absolutely. Oh, and sometimes as you say that, that needing to winnow down your point so finely into less evidence and less engagement explicitly with the secondary scholarship also can make the the evidence really pop. Um, but that's not the way we write as academics. Right, right. Um, how do the afterlives of 19th century radical movements, how are they continuing to shape U.S. politics today, especially in this moment in the last you know, three months, but as you quite rightly point out, um, actually, especially since 2008, 
where radical movements are again surging in the streets. Yeah. Um, right. Well, for those of us who study the, the 19th century, I mean, I, I think that the, the resonances are kind of shocking and have been really clear. Um, and when I was writing the book, I mean, even just finding that, that people in the 19th century kind of talked about a, a, an economic 1% having outsized power or, um, and, you know, as I said earlier, you know, kind of issues around family separation and certainly around the devaluation of black lives, et cetera, those resonances mm-hmm. are there. And I think, I mean, in the book, I do trace, the book really ends in 1877. And I do trace the the figures in the movements through the late 19th century and give a sense of how they, uh, what impact they had on party politics, social life, uh, et cetera. But I think, I mean, what I, I think I don't even see this moment as kind of like even like an afterlife of 19th century radical movements, but rather I, I think it's the case that that even the very specific goals that they set out to achieve um, were never quite reached and that, that they understood yeah. they understood their goal not as specific reforms, but as a kind of a liberationist horizon, right? Um, and so even, but even very seemingly straightforward, uh, reforms like universal suffrage has never been achieved. Um, yeah. and so we are still in a battle over this question of access to the vote. Right. Um, and, and that's, I mean, that's something that's, that's seemingly more straightforward than, you know, actual, uh, freedom and equality for people of color, women, queers, etc. Um, and so I think that, that we are, uh, in a moment where uh, we're kind of once again understanding, we're, we're kind of in another like fulcrum watershed transitional moment, um, and, and they were too. Where it seems like the the world that as we knew it seems to be kind of obviously failing, and that maybe other possible worlds are coming into to view. And I mean, what, to me, one of the scenes that most interested me to write about was. Um, what was supposed to be the very last meeting of the American antiquarian or the American antiquarian, the, the American anti-slavery society. So it was 1865. Uh-huh. The war was over. Lincoln had just been assassinated. Slavery is legally abolished by constitutional amendment, not just by the emancipation proclamation. And they sort of came together to um, seemingly to shut down the anti-slavery society. But lots of people who were present, like Stephen Foster was, is one uh, figure in the book who I really came to appreciate. He says, our goal was never you know, the, the, the legal abolition of slavery. It was our goal to write the idea of justice in the American heart. And they had not succeeded in doing that. He said they wanted equality. Um, and they laid out kind of criteria for what the success of the abolition movement would really mean. And that criteria has not been met today in 2020. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there's a kind of a continuation here. And we are seeing this turn at present to talking about an abolitionist politics with that kind of horizon of liberation and transformation in mind rather than reform. And hopefully, I mean, as we start to see more histories of 19th century abolition, that makes it clear that these people were not all like genteel middle-class whites. Um, they were people who had been enslaved, people who were still enslaved, immigrants, queers, workers, et cetera, and that they had broad coalitional goals. Hopefully, you know, that kind of history can serve the work being done now. Yeah. Um, you, you write, um, for example, when the abolition of slavery seemed a dangerous and utopian dream to the vast majority of Americans, 
The Garrisonians did not attempt to make it safer or more practical, but stretched instead toward its most disruptive and far-reaching implications. You just mentioned how uh, the ab- abolitionists were like, well, no, we've, we've achieved the end of slavery, but we haven't achieved the abolition of racial injustice. For those who haven't been able to read your book yet, could you elucidate a little bit of what were those abolitionist horizons that have been uh, you know, theorized for almost 200 years now that we're still now trying to achieve? Yeah. So that particular line about um, about the that Garris- the Garrisonians reaching toward the most disruptive and far reaching implications of, of abolition, that's specifically about the founding of the non-resistance movement, which was a splinter and, and a very uh, controversial splinter of the radical anti-slavery movement um, and other factions of, of abolitionists uh, were trying to figure out how to leverage the political system. Uh, against slavery. And they were also kind of concerned about maintaining a respectable, kind of credible, upstanding Christian image for the movement because the abolition message was so unpopular and so dangerous at this time. This is the Mm -hmm. late 1830s that I'm talking about. Um, But I found it really breathtaking that this particular group, the non-resistance, they, rather than kind of trying to be respectable and safe, they really were insistent on this kind of... um, perfectionism is really what they called it. They, they thought that, that anti-slavery sentiment and, and activism could not and should not be separated from, for instance, the full inclusion of women uh, in the group as leaders. And mm-hmm. they also, they were um, specifically opposed to prisons. They're opposed to corporal punishment. They're opposed to the military and all kinds of war. They didn't think they they were, you know, they protested like the completion of the Bunker Hill Monument in Boston um, mm-hmm. and things like that that would celebrate the the founders. Um, and um, basically they were, they had become, I think that anti-slavery activism had sensitized them to the violence of inequality that was that they just perceived it in all aspects of the American economy and politics and social mm-hmm. life. And what they wanted was a total, um, they wanted to totally separate from that. They would not uh, vote. They would not, uh, they, they basically would not function. They felt that to be an American citizen and to contribute to the United States was basically to be an agent of the slave system. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, and they were, they were pacifist anarchists. They were anti-government. They were anti-American. Um, they, with some notable exceptions, they all eventually embraced violence after John Brown. Um, mm. But basically, I mean, what's important to me about the non-resistance is that they felt that no form of oppression, no matter how seemingly natural or long settled, was off the table. And Right now, as you said, there seems to be this embrace again and an insistence on coalitional work where all issues are regarded as relevant. And it's reminding me of that kind of uh, 1840s moment where issues of sex and gender are not considered a a distraction from, you know, a focus on white supremacist Mm -hmm. uh, policing, et cetera. And even just seeing, I mean, I don't know, even just seeing the reemergence of that, of the idea of abolitionist politics in more mainstream venues in recent weeks, like that this is now a part of the discourse, you can talk about this. And obviously activists like and radicals for a long time now have been talking about prison abolition, police abolition, et cetera. But now this is something like you can get, you know, 
an email from Lululemon that we'll talk, talk about like, <laughs> abolition. I mean, this is now like part of the discourse and part of what it, I mean, yeah, they're like, congrats on being a homosexual and also, you know, abolish the police. Like this, this kind of, the fact that this all seems so uh, uh, mainstream and it seems to always happen so suddenly, like it's just head spinning rapid evolution around these issues. But in fact, I mean, it also is just reminding me that when we look at the non-resistance in the 1830s, um, everybody thought that uh, emancipation happened so quickly, considering how unpopular it was. It happened so quickly in the 60s. But in yeah. fact, these things are the, 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 res, the result of long, tiresome, seemingly pointless work of, of movements for decades and decades and decades. And then suddenly prison abolition is something you can talk about on the local news. Um, so, and and that's, and we really see the same kind of process in, in the 19th century that these ideas that, that, you know, as you read in that, in that, uh, quote were regarded as dangerous, utopian, I mean, outrageous, like impossible. Mm -hmm. These things start to seem like common sense when enough, uh, serious people in dead earnest talk about it and work for it for long enough. Including with the, with one of the tools being absolute non-participation. You know, one thing that I that I really appreciated learning more about is how how radical the demands of the abolitionists were. You know, as you gestured toward with the Garrisonians of refusing to even engage in voting, saying that's participating in a white supremacist state essentially, and we don't want to participate. And so, for me, coming as a reader initially from um, not from monograph necessarily monographs about the U.S the history of U.S. suffrage, but from more synthesis work, um, they often quote Elizabeth Cady Stanton, who tells her abolitionist, you know, husband, I'm going to demand the right to vote at Seneca Falls in 1848, you know, and he says, I'm going to leave town, and Lucretia Mott says, you'll make a laughing stock of us, and that's often portrayed as, because it was so wild to assume that women would want the vote, um, but as you point out, that's that's not the case. The reason that that was such a wild idea is that so many of the activists there were Garrisonians who said we shouldn't be participating in this institutions of a slave state, full stop. We shouldn't just be adding women to the picture and stirring. So it's the same kind of reform radicalism debates uh, that you highlight so well. I think is really uh, inspiring for how, you know, taking the safe road doesn't, isn't necessarily what produces results. Things just get narrativized later as having taken the safe road, but that That's wasn't right. at all where the abolitionists were at at the time. Yeah, I think we see a lot of warnings about um, thinking that moderation is 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 more effective, um, or that kind of insisting that only that somehow you know falling for this conversation about how. Uh, there are appropriate forms of protest and they're always nonviolent and they're always, you know, they, they're within the system, et cetera, that, that, that this is, these have been kind of the moments where things have really fallen apart. And that even though, I mean, in other, I mean, in other contexts, I would, you know, probably be cautious or about like ideological purity and a kind of insistence on, on everything all at once. But in fact, like that is kind of when I when I look at the book now, I can just see that those are the moments that really drove things forward is is people just having this kind of unapologetic insistence on everything at once. Um, And that that those were those were the moments when things moved. And then the things where they were blocked were the moments of kind of like, okay, yeah, you can have the vote. Let's give you the vote. Let's have a big celebration about that. And then, oh, whoops, 
actually no one can vote. I mean, it's like a right that can be taken away immediately and was taken away immediately. And so, so, so like putting the, putting the eggs in the basket of, of, a, of rights that can be granted to you by a government. Um, those are obviously only as, as safe and as stable as, um, as the government wants them to be. And I think people in the book who were kind of legally disenfranchised, the fact that they still found ways to shape history and to, to kind of shape uh, the uh, the political scene and the economic scene, and they still leverage their power. I think that's a really important uh, lesson at present when we, when we are kind of looking for ways to do that. Absolutely. And it makes me want to ask uh, more, even more pointedly, uh, you know, you emphasize how the broad horizon, you know, the, the deep, abolitionist, radical, completely reform the basic uh, structures of economy, property, sex, gender, social relations, family, um, that these activists are working toward, um, and yet how they didn't achieve many of their, of these most substantive uh, goals of reorganizing society. Um and so I wonder, like, what can we learn from 19th century radicals about how to think about or, or even measure the success of a collective social movement? Because you keep pointing to failures, but the failures are also part of their success. Right. I mean, so, yeah, the, the book has a kind of conclusion about the fact that um, in a certain way, that social justice work is, you know, it, it can only fail uh, to a degree in the sense that, again, it is a horizon where um, it, the goals never seem to be reached and it's, it's a moving target in a way. Um, but that, yes, that that lots of the failures were actually that that history. I mean, hi, the kind of traditional histories have been quick to say, you know, I don't know, like um, Brook Farm failed after six years or um the John Brown's raid on Harper's Ferry was kind of a disastrous failure. Like he was, he meant to escape to the mountains and kind of start an insurgent, uh, you know, revolutionary Republic that would overtake the United States. But instead he was trapped and, and his men were killed and he was executed. Um, mm. But that in fact, the people at the time, um, plenty of people saw Brook Farm as a success and, um, and actually, uh, in terms of John Brown, I mean, people even immediately understood that part of his success was being captured and and executed. Um, was the apparent failure of that raid was kind of the beginning of its success, and and I mean, kind of universally, it's understood to have right. It's kind of universally um, thought to be the the kind of catalyst that made the um, the South kind of declare war against abolitionism, which is. Um, what I think this the beginning of the Civil War was really about, because the North certainly never declared war against slavery. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think even just like the criteria for evaluating what, what constitutes, um, success and failure. Um, and it's, and it's, it's even, it's something that we have to be careful of in thinking again about this issue of like steam valves, like when, uh, you know, the Boston's mayor last week in response to protests here, um, sort of announced like, okay, yes, we're gonna, we want to, we want to, he seemed like he was making a concession to, to protests that wanted to abolish the police, but it, it turns out he wants to kind of use 3% of the police budget <laughs> to, to go toward police reforms. And so is that a success? Oh. No, it's not really. Um, and so, 
yes, I think we need a, a we need a different model where we understand the success as it's defined by these mainstream institutions, which you know often means things related to profit and um, other kinds of measurable successes. That that's really not even on the table here, and we have to have a different vision. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's really beautiful. And in closing, I want to read your final paragraph where you leave us with a really poetic sense of the many different varieties of success in a a revolution. You, You write, so with what success can we credit the radicals of the glorious social revolution? Not spotless virtue, certainly. The achievement of some crucial goals, to be sure but nowhere near the realization of their full ambitions. Following their lead, we might look not to the perpetuity of their outcomes, but to the rightness of their principles, their success in prefiguring, at least for a time, a different and better world, and most of all, their motivation to act on those principles in the face of failure, to try something when it is easier and safer by far to do nothing. Devoting their lives to a struggle with no end, they dared to begin. It's beautiful words to leave us with um, in 2020. As these movements, as you say, it's not we're not in their afterlives. We are in their continued unfinished business. Right. So thank you so much, Holly. Um, again, this has been Holly Jackson um, speaking about her new book, American Radicals, How 19th Century Protests Shaped the Nation. Thanks so much for joining us, Holly, and to all our listeners. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the C19 Podcast. Enjoyed this episode? Have thoughts? Use the hashtag C19Podcast or get in touch with us at C19Podcast at gmail.com. Have an idea for an episode? Check out our CFP on the C19 website for more details on submitting a proposal.